This is Shop Talk Radio, episode 52 with Irv Braun. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onken, and on this show, we're bringing you inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneurial lifestyle to bridge the gap between art, commerce, and inspiration. What is up, everyone? I just got back from St. Martin last night, which was an amazing time. Never been there. I was shooting my friend Satya Twina's lookbook for her brand, Soul Amer. Great time, beautiful time, and my lobster sunburn is now turning into a tan. But I want to introduce you to today's episode's podcast guest, Irv Braun. They call him Big Irv, and he is larger than life. He is the father of Adam and Scooter Braun, who you may know. He has an amazing story. He escaped the Holocaust with his parents when he was three, migrated to the U.S., grew up in Brooklyn, and then he followed his entrepreneurial spirit of his family, started a business, and then moved to Greenwich, Connecticut to raise his kids. But he raised them in a very special way. He raised them to be fearless, heartfelt humans, which you'll hear about today on the episode. Irv is an amazing human, and in this episode, we learn what it takes to raise world-changing children as a father. He is a diehard kite surfer, wakeboarder, and sport junkie, a never-ending ball of energy. He did his ice bucket challenge while wake surfing behind a boat. He slept on the streets in New York City with the homeless to raise awareness. He's coached basketball and many, many more things. He and his wife, Susan, adopted Sam and Cornelio from Africa as well and raised them. His kids are world changers in the worlds of health, philanthropy, entertainment, politics, and many more. His daughter, Liza, is a doctor and world traveler. Now, for those of you who are still wondering, Irv is the father of Scooter and Adam Braun. Adam is the founder of Pencils of Promise, one of the fastest growing charities of our generation, I worked with Adam since the beginning of Pop, and I also interviewed him, and you can listen to his interview, which is a must-listen, at shoptalkradio.com slash EP11 to hear about his story of being on this semester at sea boat that almost got capsized by a 60-foot wave. His book, I definitely recommend as well, The Promise of a Pencil on finding your purpose in life and the lessons that he learned in building a charity. Adam and I have been friends and have worked together since he started Pop about six years ago. He's an amazing human and a world changer. I always describe him as the guy that you talk to for five minutes and you want to go change the world. Scooter is also a Shop Talk Radio guest and is now one of the biggest and well-known music moguls of our generation who I've come to know over the last couple of years. He is responsible for finding one of the megastars of our generation, Justin Bieber, and building his career. Scooter is an inspiring human and changing the world on a massive scale with entertainers such as Ariana Grande, Tori Kelly, Asher Roth, who is also another podcast guest, EP31, and many more. If you haven't heard Scooter's interview, go check it out. It's a must. Shoptalkradio.com slash EP1. Now, in this episode, we learn the lessons that Irv taught his kids throughout the years as their father and what it took from him. 
This episode is an inspiring one for any parent out there or if you're even thinking about having kids because life is a mental game. And if you can instill great mental education throughout their development, it's a game changer. So without further ado, the one and only Irv Braun. What is up, everyone? Welcome to the show, Mr. Irv Braun. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. I'm flattered that you even asked. So for those of you who don't know who Irv Braun is, he is the father of Adam and Scooter, who have both been on the podcast here. And and Liza. And Liza. And leave Liza out. And you have a bigger family. Yeah. Yeah. Sam and Cornelia. So... I want to jump in and kind of let's let's hear from you how you know where you came from and we'll get into like how you raised your your family but first of all we're sitting here in the beautiful Greenwich Connecticut on the on the lake at the at this amazing house No this is actually not a lake this is oh, this actually this is actually the Atlantic Ocean it's the Long Island Sound No kidding little, little cove of the sound yeah you go past that little spot there and that's the uh, sound and then the ocean Wow this is where you do your wakeboarding and kiteboarding, though. Yep, you're right in a, the backyard, paddleboarding. Right. Rock star on the water. <laughs> <laughs> I like to not just look at the water. I want to be in it. So, and you're in it all the time. All the time. I remember last year we were leaving. It was Adam's wedding, and you were you were just you were coming straight to the water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I can't resist it. it. It beckons me. So I've been friends with Adam and Scooter for a long time, and I've gotten to know them very well. And they are definitely world changers. And I kind of want to know what's your what's your background? You know, where are you from? Like, so let's get a little background story, and then we'll go from there. Okay, I am actually a uh, I'm a immigrant refugee child. Mm. So America's been very good to me. Yeah, uh, I was born in Budapest, Hungary. My parents are both Holocaust survivors, and they uh, wow. after surviving the Holocaust, they met each other. Kind of everyone was looking to find their family and. Many people didn't, including mine. Uh, so they uh, united in 1950, right after the war. They had not known each other during the war. Mm. But my mom was in Auschwitz. My dad was in Dachau. And they, uh, 1950, they got married. But Hungary at that time was a communist country. So it was a very difficult place to live. Yeah. Uh, I was born in 54. And it's an interesting story because uh, the Hungarian Revolution broke out in 1956. And we escaped... Uh, during that revolution, wow. literally by a horse-drawn wagon in the middle of the night. No kidding. Yeah, crazy story. Crazy story. My dad was actually studying to be a dental student uh, in in Budapest, which was very difficult to achieve because if you were Jewish, you were not allowed to, even at that time, were not kind of allowed to go to graduate school. But he yeah. managed to get in there. So he was a very versatile man. He managed to get in, and he was about to graduate in 1957. So when the revolution broke out, there were people dying on the streets, and it was very, very dangerous. Wow. But um, he wanted to stay because he knew that if he left his career, he would never get that chance to get that degree. So we literally stayed uh, to the point where it was so dangerous, and, and my dad tells this story. I don't remember it, of course. But at, at some point, the Russians decided during the revolution that, you know, um, we got to put a squash on this, no more. And they just started rolling the heavy artillery and tanks. And we were, lived in an apartment in Budapest, and my dad said he had me, in, you know, he was carrying me in his arms, and he looked out the window, and a tank was rolling down with a Russian soldier 
with a machine gun, um, you know, just looking for snipers. Oh my God. And he looked at directly at my dad and saw that he was carrying me and he stopped and then he waved at him to just get back, go away. Wow. And that's what said, you know, my dad said, okay, we got to get out of here. <laughs> so he, he proceeded to organize a series of farms that would take us from one farm to another in the night by mm. horse-drawn wagon to get to the border and escape over to Austria. Wow. Which, uh, which, which, when I look back now, because, you know, when you're a young kid, you don't remember things, but you remember traumatic things. Yeah. And I remember being, my mother pushing my head underneath these covers in this horse-drawn wagon, like, to stay quiet. And she would put her hand over my mouth, and it was, like, you know, very upsetting to me. <laughs> How old were you? I was three and a half. Okay. So, you know, you really don't remember much, but just that trauma of, like, <laughs> why, are you sh- why are you pushing my head down? You know, that... Yeah. Um, but uh, we managed to get to the Austrian border and we crossed the Austrian border and then ended up in Vienna where the government was uh, basically housing thousands of refugees. And we stayed in a prison, um, not as prisoners, but more as, you know, a place to hold uh, for about four weeks mm. until we were able to get on a merchant marine ship and come across the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. Which was an amazing story, too, because that was not exactly a cruise liner. It was like a little like thing that bobbed up and down in the uh, yeah. ocean. And the, my sister and I, I had one older sister. We loved it. But every single day, I remember another traumatic scene was seeing my mother and father being in gurneys going off to the uh, infirmary because they were they were deathly ill from the uh, seasickness. I mean, it was just rocking oh. and rolling. So we, it took us 15 days to cross the Atlantic. Wow. And then we arrived in the United States thinking there was gold on the streets, you know. And we, we ended up going to... Um, a place in New Brunswick, New Jersey, called Camp Kilmer, which is a, was a refugee camp, and uh, we stayed there for another six weeks until they we just you know they kind of helped locate us what we we're going to end up doing, and we ended up moving to Brooklyn. No so one way. one one bedroom apartment. Uh, how many people? There was seven of us, six six of us, I think. Yeah, uh, my family, my grandmother, and literally lived in a one bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, with nothing, but thought we were. You know, in heaven. <laughs> so that's incredible. that's that's how it all started. What, yeah. what year was this? That was 1957. Okay, January 17th, 1957. I stepped uh, on American soil, and uh, I've been other places since, but this is home. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I was fluent in. I, I still am fluent in Hungarian. Oh, that amazing. was my native language, yeah. Amazing. Do you still speak it that much? Not, not that often. Um, you know, I speak with my mother, who's uh, still alive, and my sister on occasion. It's always funny. My wife just laughs all the time that no matter where we go, we find a Hungarian somehow. There's always a we we once went whitewater rafting in West Virginia, really in Appalachia. I mean, in the backwoods, and this guide comes out and starts talking. I say, "That's it. He's got the accent." And it turns out he's Hungarian. <laughs> so it doesn't matter where you go, you're gonna find a Hungarian somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So tell us more about getting out of of Hungary and and. I guess paint even a deeper picture of their resilience of of and well, drive to get out. Well, think about it. I mean, you know, my dad was 24 when he was in the concentration camps. My mom was 14. Mm. Uh, to have survived that was incredible. But you know, afterwards, it was truly a diaspora, and that all these people were trying to go back home to find their missing relatives. As it turns out, my mom was the lone survivor mm. of her family. Uh, my dad had two sisters and a mother that survived, but trying to rebuild a life and this was uh, you know and this kind of 
part, you know, kindly parts of sto- tells the story of how my family kind of became who they are because for them, when, when my sister and I were born, they were extremely protective of mm. my sister and I. And that's because, to the point where it's a little bizarre, Yeah, but you have to understand that for them, it was like the impossible happened. Because as my mother would tell you now, she was a 14-year-old girl just like any other kid here in Greenwich, Connecticut, across America. She had her friends. She went to play after school. She had boys she was interested. Everything was just the same. There was no special uniqueness to it. Mm. And imagine if one day soldiers came down the street and took you away. Just, just the impossible. Something so bizarrely absurd. And so it occurred in their life. So when I was an older kid and I said, oh, I want to go, go on the school bus with all the other kids, they said, no, you're not going. Mm. Well, why not? Well, well, you know, something could happen. Well, all the other kids are going. No, no, you're not going. You're different. You're not going. And I grew up with that. Wow. And it was very difficult at times, but as I reflect back, I realize um, that they had experienced something that most people never will even understand, let alone mm. experience. And it kind of... You know, this is sort of a segue. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm ready to segue, but that was one of the reasons why when I raised my kids, I said, you know, you're different. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, getting back to uh, that whole story of Hungary. So they, they had, you know, formed a life in Budapest with no intention of leaving the country. But when the revolution broke out, it was a political revolution. And as a minority, as being Jewish in Hungary, it was not a great life. You were, there was still, there was still prejudice and still things that you know we don't tolerate today yeah um but my dad wanted to stay because he thought he saw a career for himself Mm. uh when we left uh, i'm uh, this is a great story too you know he literally when he finally decided we have to get out of here because there were you know snipers and you know (laughs) people dying on the street in our you know right where we lived he actually just to make sure it was safe went across the border and checked out that it could be done, came back with a, a leaf from a tree and came and told the family that this is an Austrian leaf. <laughs> We're going to make it. And he, te- he used to tease me all the time. He says, you know, a lot, and this is true, a lot of people didn't come back. Mm. They left and left their families. Wow. Yeah. So he used to, when I used to give him a hard time, he says, you know, I could have left you back here. I could have left you and gone <laughs> off and you'd still be uh, right here stuck. So um, he did come back for us and orchestrated this spectacular escape. I mean, literally, it's like out of a movie. So how did he plan it? He, he organized, a, like I mentioned before, he organized a series of peasant farmers and paid them whatever mm-hmm. little he had left because he knew he could never take anything. As a matter of fact, to get on the merchant marine ship, we, they, my mother literally gave her engagement ring and her wedding wow. ring as, you know, to pay for us to go across but he would pay these peasant farmers, and there was a series of farms that linked from one to another, and we'd only travel at night by horse-drawn wagon. When we got to the Austrian-Hungarian border, there were hundreds of people trying to get across the border. And my mother tells this scene of how, you know, there we are with, so it was my family and his two sisters' family, so there's 13 of us. Yeah. He, had, or he was organizing 13 people. Oh, my God. And this crowd, can you imagine a crowd of people standing in front of a gate with a soldier saying, show me your papers. Uh, and he had forged these papers that as a doctor, he needed to be an intern on the hospital at Borderline. Mm. And my mother says, there's like 13 of us standing here. And he walks up just as typical as my dad would be. And he says, here are my papers. 
I'm Dr. Braun, and this is my family. And <laughs> and the guys looking at 13 of you are all going. <laughs> and literally, my mother said she remembers trembling, standing there holding me and my dad holding my sister. And, and the guy miraculously said, okay, go through. Wow. And we crossed the border. Wow. So uh, that was how that, how that <laughs> transpired. That's incredible. Yeah. So how do you get, I didn't even, the Merchant Marine ship, what is that? Yeah, like there, were, there were organizations. Uh, there was actually a uh, Jewish organization that still exists called Kayas that was helping refugees. You know, there's still many organizations for all sorts of cultural yeah. backgrounds. And they had, um, you know, tried to organize that if you had some family members in the United States, that they would, they would send you over and you mm. could go across because they didn't want to just send you blind and right. not know what to do with you. It turns out my dad had an uncle who was a chicken farmer in New Jersey. By our standards at that time, he was a successful. You know, he had some money. Yeah. And because of that, the organization would not let us go unless he sponsored us. And he wouldn't. Wow. Which was very sad. And I, I'll tell you a story later about how on his dying bed, he was begging my dad for his forgiveness. Uh, when all his other kids were clamoring for his money. And, and my dad was the only one still supporting him. And his, oh, wow. his elderly age. But we somehow managed to get the organization to sponsor us. And we came across and, uh, you know, we went to this uh, immigration camp and uh, stayed there for weeks. And they landed a job for my dad in a necktie factory, which is pretty funny, working as a worker. And, you know, he was a fairly educated man. Yeah. And that lasted for a couple of weeks. And he was, uh, he was a very proud guy, too. So he said, that's it. We're, we're out of here. I'm going to start a dental technician's business, which is basically dentists, you know, you know what a dentist is, but dental technician is the guy who makes the teeth in the laboratory that mm. supports the dentist. So he had a lot of experience with that growing up. So he, he moved, we moved to Brooklyn, got a one bedroom apartment, literally with nothing. Initially he wanted to go to dental school uh, and he enrolled, but he didn't even speak English. Oh wow! So um, they made him repeat his undergraduate degree, mm -hmm. which lasted you know, nine months, and he had a family to support. It was impossible to do. My mother was working in the sewing mills in Brooklyn. Wow. So he gave that dream up. Where in Brooklyn was this? Uh, in um, uh, Lincoln Place. Lincoln Place. Yeah, it's uh, not, not far from Williamsburg, where you are now. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, as it turns out, my sister and I both became dentists, which so probably very, you know, the main reason why we did is because that was his dream, and we ended up fulfilling it, so oh, to wow. speak. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's how we got started. You know, he, he opened up this little dental shop and went to, uh, went to various dentists to get work. And, and this is another thing that played such an incredible role in my life later. You realize when you're in that very vulnerable position in life that it's so significant when someone reaches out a hand to help you mm. and so impactful and so devastating if someone takes advantage of you. Years later, when Sam and Cornelio came into our lives, Sam and Cornelio are two adopted boys yeah. that we met when they were living here in the United States, 13 and 14 years old, 14 and 15 years old, and they had come to the United States to play basketball, but um, they had, you know, really come to get an education, mm -hmm. and they ended up in a, an abandoned tenement at South Philly in a very bad situation. Mm. And I remember thinking these kids wanted to go back home. That's how bad it was. Can you imagine Mozambique's the poorest country in the world? And I remember thinking that we had to do something because I remembered how when someone took advantage of us, it 
killed it just destroyed us yeah. but when someone reaches reached out to us just a simple little helping hand in any way was so significant and and i felt i had to do the same thing yeah. so that was one of the reasons the background so going back what did it take from you to get out of that when you know somebody took advantage of you well, as a, look, I was a young kid, so it wasn't, uh, to me, I was just riding my tricycle and I was happy as can be. <laughs> but as I grew older and I understood the stories, you know, I remember that my dad wanted to start a little business. So he borrowed some money, what he thought was at a reasonable rate. And the guy was, you know, charging mm. triple what the you know average number was, which set us back two years of potential growth of net worth because, you know, he was paying crazy He just thought that's what was acceptable. But some guy, kind of a loan shark, took advantage of us. We, um, you know, would run into legal some things and some an attorney would tell us, oh, we'll represent you and mm. we'll, as an immigrant, you have certain, and, and you know, you know, take, take advantage of, tell untruths or things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, not earth shattering things, but it, it was very painful and it would, you know, and a family depends so on so much on so little. Yeah. You take that little away and it's very impactful. To me today, it would mean, eh what a jerk, you know, and that was it. I'd move on. Yeah. But then, it, you know, you're feeling, feeding a family of four on wages that can barely feed one. It, it's very, very significant. Yeah. So what, what mindsets and values did you, did you learn from that? Well, first of all, I think the biggest thing is that you, you learn to appreciate every little thing. Mm. If I tell you now, I'm granted, I have knock on wood, had a very blessed life in many, many different ways. And I love toys. I have to admit, I'm a toy guy. <laughs> well, you ask my sons, both of them will say, oh my God, dad's got every toy there is. But if I tell you I treasure every one of those toys and I take care of them and I, I, I make sure I use them, they don't sit aside. You know, if I, have, if I bought a car, for example, I, I just, um, I appreciate every little thing. Because I've been on both sides, trust me. I like this side a lot better. I really do. It's yeah. not that I couldn't exist to the other way, but this side's just more fun. Yeah. And you got to appreciate that. If you don't, then you're missing the ride. Yeah. Gratefulness is such a huge, important thing oh, to yeah. life and growth. And Yeah. Yeah. Without question. And if you think about it, you know, that's the challenge because now I was, you know, we talked before about telling stories. When my kids grew up, they heard all these stories. It was very impactful on them. Yeah. And they always worried about, Dad, where am I going? Well, I can't. I can't match your stories and and <laughs> Ma and Apu's stories. That's my grand. My father was called Apu, and my mother was Ma. I can't match those. I said, you will have stories. Trust me to tell your kids. And yeah. they do. And look at look at the stories they can tell. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> who would have imagined? Uh, so um, yeah, we all can uh, savor all our memories. Yeah, I, of all the times that I've hung out with Adam and Scooter, like they have stories for days. Yeah, stories yeah no for question. Days. And they used to worry. They used to worry because my story and, and what I worried about, quite honestly, is that how do you uh, make them appreciate where they came from, but give them everything you could possibly give them? Who doesn't want to do that for their kids, right? Yeah. But the key was to make sure, and you talked about gratefulness, mm. the key was that, you know, they understood what it meant, what it meant to get there. And if you got it, savor every second of it. And all three of my kids, my daughter also, Liza and Adam and Scott, and now Sam and Cornelio, they, they all treasure the special things that they have. Yeah. And you brought that, you instilled that into them from a very young age. From day one. And how did you do that? 
You know, there are a lot of different ways. I mean, when we moved to Greenwich, Connecticut, for example, my biggest concern was, you know, we've moved to this incredibly affluent community. But we chose Greenwich because, interestingly enough, Greenwich, if you went to the student center at the high school, Mm -hmm. you'd be amazed by the diversification. There's three housing projects in Greenwich. There's a lot of ethnicity. There are other towns that I considered living in, but Greenwich, although it's got the incredibly wealthy, also has lower socioeconomic groups, and the mixture is very healthy, Mm. I think. Yeah. Although it's still in a bubble. I'm not, uh, you know, (laughs) let's not kid ourselves, you know. But what I tried to do is make sure they were immersed in other environments. So, for Mm. example, you know that we were very involved in basketball. You know that I coached basketball for 20 years. I played my son. Everyone, if you're brawn, you pretty much play basketball. (laughs) Uh, except for Lies, who ended up being a superstar in lacrosse. But I would purposely take my boys and go up to Norwalk, Connecticut, or Bridgeport and mm-hmm. make them play ball with inner city kids from, you know, oh, wow. African American kids, uh, Italian kids, uh, you know, Hispanic kids. And I wanted them to feel comfortable. I wanted them to understand it's just not Lily White, Greenwich, Connecticut. Yeah. yeah. So I would take them up there. And you can ask them um, that one of the most impactful things that happened to them is, you know, one of my friends, uh, or I should say one of Scott's friends, I call him Scott, by the way, I don't call him Scooter, so just Scott, yeah, heads up. One of Scott's friends was saying, you know, I've never seen someone so fearless in a, in a business meeting or in a boardroom. It's unbelievable. And I heard him in an interview once say that one of the things that made him feel that way was playing ball as a kid. Mm. I would take my little Greenwich team and travel intentionally to up to Bridgeport or wherever. And I, you know, I saw the fear in these little (laughs) kids eyes when these tough inner city kids would come out on the court. They weren't bigger. They weren't anything. They just looked different. They carried themselves different. And I didn't care if we lost by 50 points, but if you showed fear, I wouldn't tolerate it. Mm -hmm. I said, they're no different than you. What are you afraid of? What's what's the are they taking out a, a knife or a gun or something? Are they threatening you with their? No, this is an activity. This is a sport. This is a competition. You never are f- afraid of your opponent ever. Mm. And you know, after a while, you know, you say a lot of things when you're raising kids, and you don't know if any of it sticks or not. But you know, thirty years later, he's telling this interviewer saying, and that stuck in my mind that what? Why should I be fearful of anyone in a boardroom, in a business meeting, in a transaction? Just do it. You know, what's there to fear? Yeah. So as it turns out, uh, you know, things like that, in- integrating them into, I would take them into New York all the time is very important. Mm-hmm. They just, the, the things that we talked about, the things that we emphasized, Yeah. that, you know, this is great and we're going to go to this fancy place, but you know, other people don't get to do that, right? You understand mm-hmm. that, right? And that in combination with the influence of uh, their grandparents uh, yeah. on both sides, I think made them understand that what we have is great, but you got to appreciate it because most people don't have it. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, and I know Scott's talked a lot about pushing into fear and that's a big thing for him. Yeah, yeah. Ironic, huh? Little basketball team that travels <laughs> around that would instill that confidence to... Uh, yeah, but, so, but where'd you get the idea to even do that? Because that's, that's something brilliant in and of itself. Um, where did I get the idea? I don't know. I, I don't know if I consciously... I guess the best the best uh, answer would be that having really been so immersed in that world, mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. I used to, as a kid, we would go up on Sundays and drive up to what I used to call an immigrant park, 
which mm. was Bear Mountain State Park. I don't know if you know where it is, but it's upstate New there. York. It's about 65 minutes, 70 minutes away okay. from New York. And I, we were living in Brooklyn, and we would drive up there to get out into the, quote, country. Mm-hmm. And we'd bring our little portable chairs and, and mostly other Hungarians who were, you know, immigrants or immigrant groups would be at this, this state park. And if you went there today, I call it the immigrant park because I guarantee you there'll be minorities strictly there. Because everyone else, you know, here is going to their country club or their golf course, right? Yeah. And I remember as we used to drive up, I used to drive past Connecticut and look, you know, because you pass it on the highway. I'd say, wow, I bet there's some beautiful Little League fields here. And I had this dream of coming here and living and raising my family mm-hmm. in this incredible, beautiful environment. But when I did it, you know, you can't eliminate what you were raised in. It's part of you. It's ingrained yeah. in you. You can't yeah. deny it. And I wasn't ashamed of it either. I mean, I, we, were, we had nothing. Yeah. But we had each other. We were happy. And I knew that that common denominator does not always go through. Because you look at all these affluent people and they're not happy. Yeah. So as long as I kept that happiness inside, mm-hmm. I knew that my kids will be appreciative of both styles of life. I knew that. Yeah. But if I had the choice, I'd rather have the fun side, which is, you know, you know, having Absolutely. some nice things along with the happiness. Yeah. And that can occur if you keep them, you know, online that this came for a reason. It was hard work and it was, you know... Uh, you have to appreciate what we have. And I, I think that's what the general mindset was. Just don't forget where you come. To this day, to this day, my kids' level of success are so wildly even beyond my dreams. Yeah. Yet I monitor so closely, and I know it's in their heads too. I mean, you know Scott just had their first baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My grandson, which is probably the best brawn of all. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. But, you know, he... It concerns him. He knows that he's going to raise his son in a level of affluence that, you know, 10 times what he grew up in. Yeah. And that's okay. And that is okay. It's not something you have to fight or, you know, be scared of, but you got to pay attention because that kid has to know as long as he knows what it took to get there, how so many people, how, what, what a small percentage of the world that he has been blessed to be. And he appreciates that Mm -hmm. all the more power. Yeah, Absolutely. It's, it's got to be a fine line to be able to teach, you know, be in an affluent space, but teach your children the value of hard work. Oh, without question. I mean, you look at Adam, I mean, his career is so extraordinary and what he did. And he was on that, you know, that path, that straight path of, you know, finance and mm-hmm. the typical Greenwich. And you know the reason why he, he's spoken about it, but let me highlight to you what turned it for him. Mm-hmm. He, in all his travels, he saw poverty and he knew he was affluent as a kid. And, he, and he's got the, the heart, the bigger the size of this whole country. <laughs> yet, yet he couldn't explain, and he's a very thoughtful individual, and he couldn't explain why he was picked. Why was he chosen to be mm-hmm. so, so lucky to be such a good life, such a, an affluent life, such success? And he realized that he's got to do something about it. If he was chosen for that then he needs to help others get at least closer to some level of that. Yeah. And that's what really turned it for him. So he, you know, when you you teach your kids about all the things that you want them to be, I mean, if you don't include that there's a bigger story than just who they are, Mm -hmm. you you missed something there. Yeah. There's a bigger picture. Yeah. So my daughter, you know, going to medical school and, 
you know, a lot of people go, oh, I want to be a doctor because it's a good career. No, she she really wants to make a change. Yeah. She really wants to make a change in, you know, her path. Which Think about it. My my three biologic kids, they one's in philanthropy, one's in entertainment, <laughs> one's in medicine. It's kind of interesting, huh? <laughs> three worlds apart. Yeah, one one wants to save the world, one wants to cure it, the other one wants to entertain it. <laughs> I guess it makes up the whole family makes up. <laughs> right. Um, right. That's funny. I mean, no, I mean, when I met Adam um, for the first time, him and I really connected and over a beer, this is what 2009 when he had one school he had built and a friend of ours who was on the boat with him um, had introduced us. And after I met with him, I, you know, I, that's what I saw on him. I saw he has a, bleeding heart for the cause, but he's a brilliant business brain right. to like build. I knew that he was going to build something big. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting combination that he took. And now he's really changing the, uh, when I raised my kids, I like getting back to what I said about being different, you know, how I knew that being raised by my family, I would literally every night before they go to sleep, mm. Tell them, you know, obviously I love them or tell them they were jerks today or whatever, but I still love them. <laughs> and I told them many times, trust me, in, in stronger words than that. But I always told them that, look, bronze are different. Mm. You guys are different. I didn't say they were better. I said, you're different. I'm going to hold you to a different standard, a higher standard, because you have to do great things. One of the interesting things that I think that people who do reach a certain level of affluence that forget, uh, you know, is that what they can do for their kids is give them the security blanket, just the security to let them reach for anything. Mm -hmm. their, their greatest dreams, that they don't have to stay mediocre, yeah. that they can really reach for something. Because if you just set that net underneath them to really let them know intrinsically that we're there for you, if you fall down, we're going to help you get up. Yeah. I think that that, you know, that, and that's, that's the challenge of, you know, parents who reach a certain level of success. To be more successful than my parents was very easy. I just had to make a little bit more money, and I was it, you know, because yeah. they made nothing. They had nothing. Yeah. So it was very easy to say, okay, I'm going to succeed. my parents. But think about each generation. You think about the baby boomers first, then the millenniums, and now the Gen X, and I don't even know what generation's coming up <laughs> next. But the challenges are unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, and you see it in college applicants. I got guys who say, yeah, I went to Duke 30 years ago. I'd never get in today, man. It, it's just so much more challenging. Mm. So you, you need to uh, stay focused on, you know, letting them know that they can do something great. And I would tell them every single day. So that when they said, look, I'm, I'm going to go do this over there with Billy and those other guys I said, no, you're not. Dad, come on, everyone's doing it. I go, no, no. And well, why? Because bronze are different. Mm. They're just different. And I think that, again, trust me, I'm no genius. <laughs> I was flying by the seat of my pants as every young parent is because that's the thing about parenting. You don't know what the hell you're doing. You're just hoping that it works. Right. I was lucky that it worked um, because they, when they look back, they remember me telling them that, you know what? Yeah. Why be normal? Go for something special. Yeah. Go for something tremendous. Well, that's so powerful to, and I've, I've heard that story from both of them and I know how much of a difference that made in their lives and it's, it's been huge. So, you know, <laughs> kudos to you on, on bringing that into their upbringing. I know it's made a huge difference. Yeah. Thanks. And thanks. I always love that story. Like it even makes me emotional to hear it because like, it's so powerful. It's so powerful to even like have a father who would say that to their kids every night. 
Yeah, but every night, every night, every night. Yep. And yep. um, no, nah, it's, it's it's an amazing thing. So that's I'm 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 excited to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks very much. Um. So what what other kind of things did you do, um, in their upbringing for all three of them? Well, um. You know, the other challenges, I mean, look, first of all, the oldest one, that would be Scott. He he put me to the test. He, on a regular basis, would challenge me. Um, <laughs> and, it, you know, for all those, if there are parents listening, again, I'm no expert. I really don't profess to be. I have all these people, you know, it's really funny. I have all these people that are asking my wife and I that you've got to write a book. I mean, I, I just, your kids are like uber kids. Like, what did you do? And we're looking look at each other and go, I don't know. I, I don't know what to... And it's almost like I'm embarrassed to, to assume that I have the right to be such an expert that I would write something like that, although I'm very tempted because yeah. so many people ask us more. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, we were just very, very lucky. I mean, uh, another, another example that I think of is, uh, you know, like my, my son challenged us. We had some rough times. Uh, Scott was, you know, the oldest, rebellious, wanted to feel his own oats. And this is, this is another thing that I learned that, you know, I had spent when my sons finally were ready. Mm-hmm. I had spent my whole lifetime trying to make my boys become men, real men, mm-hmm. good men. And when they were finally ready, I wanted my little boy back. I said, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. You're, you're not coming up to me here. And that was one of the most difficult things I faced. And as a father, you better be ready to step down hmm. just step back and let your sons be men their own men yeah because that's what you wanted but when it happens you're going hey back down son back down here i'm still the man you know and you can't do that it's their moment to shine and and thank god i have an amazing wife who who always kind of you know when i was ready to bust or something like that she'd say just just calm down and just you know let them they have to feel their you know their own way. I'll give you a great example. When they first started to become somewhat successful, we formed a little family company to do some business deals. Mm. Very exciting. And uh, we're coming up on a meeting and Adam and Scott were talking about, you know, what they were going to do. And I said, okay. And then, then, you know, if you want me, I'll, and they looked at me and go, "Uh, dad, um, you're not going to be there. I go, what do you mean? What do you mean I'm not going to be there? They said, we're going to do this one day. It's okay. You're, You're all right. I said, well, and they said, Dad, you know, we can't go to a meeting with our daddy, you know? Mm. And I just looked at them and I went, oh, man. Okay. All right. It was so hard. I literally went home like with the, like little puppy dog, you know, saddened. But it was the right move. They had to uh, become their own men. Yeah. They were becoming their own men. I had to step down because that's what my dream was. Yeah. Now it's gone beyond my wildest dreams. So <laughs> very lucky. Wow. Yeah. And, and just one other thing, just a little anecdotal story, because I remember, especially with the baby boomers, I got to tell you, there isn't a baby boomer alive who doesn't think that they're not cooler than their parents' generation. Yeah. Oh, we had the music, we had the drugs, <laughs> we had the sex, we had the whole thing, Dylan, and it's grateful that, I mean, we had it all, right? So we're cool. We're hip. We can, we can you know, we're going to be cool forever, right? <laughs> and I'll never forget, we had our first boat. 
and I bought this boat so that I could have fun with my kids. Of course, it's it's all about always been about the kids. I think Adam was about 16 or something like that. And he said, I said, I called him up. I said, Adam, I'm getting off work early. Let's go down on the boat. We'll do some wakeboarding. He says, well, Dad, actually, uh, my buddy Donnie, who's a very close friend of the family, Donnie and I are going to go out there, and we got some friends coming. I said, okay, cool. Uh, you know, we'll have some good times, you know, whatever. He says, well, Dad, it's a couple of girls that are going to come out on the boat. We're going to go. I said, Adam, no, no issues. I'll drive the boat. You guys can be in the back, and you guys can do, you know, wakeboard. I'll just be the driver. And he looks at me and says, Dad, it's Donnie and I and a couple of girls. And all of a sudden, it hit me. And I thought of, if I were his age, and my dad said to me, listen, I'll, get, I'll be on the boat with you, hanging out. I'd kill myself first, you know? But I, of course, thinking as a baby boy, I'm cool, I'm hip, you know, whatever. Not true. Whoever's listening out there, it's nothing different than the generation before. <laughs> You're not as cool as you think you are. You need to step off. <laughs> uh, that's great. <laughs> I mean, I love my guys, and we still have a great time. And, you know, with all, I mean, I, I'm so friendly with all you guys. I mean, you know how much I love hanging out with you guys. Yeah, um, yeah you're always out. Yeah. We, we I, see you at the parties everywhere. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, 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 I'm one of the guys, but you got, you got to realize that I'm still dad. I'm dad first. I'm not a friend. I'm dad first. And you better, some of these guys who I see, like, oh, I'm a friend and, uh, you know, I like to do stuff. I go, of course you are, but you're dad first. Yeah. Some of these pop stars' dads need to learn, yeah. learn some things, huh? Yeah, maybe. maybe <laughs> I suppose. So how did you teach your boys to become men? Hmm. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you my secret. Mm. My real Ooh. secret was the hot tub. Oh, the hot tub. Okay, okay. Explain. I would, uh, so we had a hot tub, and uh, I would always, at nighttime, get in that hot tub with my boys. I think the heat was like a truth serum, like sodium <laughs> pentothal, because every detail would come out <laughs> when they were growing up as teenage boys. Everything. And we'd share stories and talk, and we'd sit out there and just uh, have incredible conversations and we'd, we'd share with each other. Mm. To this day, they talk about the, the hot tub, but wow. um, it was just being open. And I think uh, what I found out as a parent years later, I'll tell you a great story. I, I was talking to my wife, and we, as I said, we, we shared graphic details. I mean, my sons and I did everything and talked about everything. My daughter was a more private person. Liza was more private, so when, when she was getting older, I'd always ask my wife, well, what'd you find out? What'd you find out? She'd say, I, I don't know. She went to, I said, what, are you, what is wrong with you? I gave you every dirty detail when the boys were getting out. I, like, I want to know what Liza's up to. So it is somewhat of a personality. But um, I remember one time my, we were talking about, there was a lot of, a lot of our friends were getting divorced. Mm. And, uh, you know, a couple of guys were screwing around and they got caught, blah, blah, this and that. And my wife says to me, by the way, because she knew we talked about everything. She said, and the boys were like maybe 14 and 16. And she said, um, did you ever talk to the boys about fidelity? I said, no, I never did. She said, well, you better talk to them because you hear this guy and that guy. and You better. So I said, <laughs> OK, OK, OK. So the next time we go out in the hot tub, I'm thinking how I'm going to cleverly talk about this. So we're talking and um, I somehow come up to the subject gently and this and that. And I said, well, you know, boys, you know, I, I played around quite a bit before I got married. But once I got married, that was, you know, that's kind of a, and they're looking at me quizzically and. Finally, they said to me, Dad, why are you talking about this? I said, well, I just thought it would be important to, to explain to you how 
it, you know, fidelity once you're married to a woman and committed. And he said, Dad, you don't have to tell us that. We see what you do. Mm. And it just hit me that you ask, how do you teach someone you walk the walk? Now, granted, you can, you know, I hate to use the cliche, talk the talk, but you live your life as you want your sons and daughters to live them and good things will happen. Yeah. Simple as that. Absolutely. So what does being a man mean to you then? If, if you're, you know, in the sense of being a role model. In a family? In a family, yeah. And, I'll and tell in you. general. I'll tell you. I believe that most families are held together by the man, if the man does the right thing, mm. believe it or not. not. Not prejudiced in any way, but I feel that women are more naturally nurturing, mm-hmm. more naturally giving of themselves mm-hmm. for the sacrifice of the family. Men sometimes get caught up in their egos because we all have huge egos. They get caught up in their careers. Mm-hmm. They co- get caught up in success. And if, if you don't take that time out to remember that you can make this family great, then, then things can go astray. That's how men and women start to go in separate directions. They, she has her life. He has his life with his career. She's at home. And, and if you don't make the effort to, to keep that fire strong... I think that you uh, that there's a, a higher chance of failure that yeah. your family is not going to be successful. So you know how do you keep that direction going? As a man, you play many roles. You're mm-hmm. you're the leader. Uh, as far as potentially, I mean, now it's changed. I mean, you don't even have to be the major breadwinner, right? Yeah. It's so different. But hypothetically, if you were, you have to combine that with your total devotion to your wife as a separate entity. Mm and your children as a separate entity. Mm. Because your kids, first of all, model after you if you want your kids to be happily, if family-oriented one day, they're going to model what they saw. No doubt about it. So they have to see how much you love your wife and Mm. vice versa. And they have to see that fire is still there. And then they separately have to feel that they're your world, that nothing's more important than them. Mm. If you can do all those things and still have your career and still have your recreational time and still because you know no one plays more than me. <laughs> this Trust is very me. true. No one plays more than me. I don't give up my playtime, <laughs> but I never sacri- I never never took my playtime at the sacrifice of my family. Yeah. So and they and and you see that, you know, young boys, they see that and hopefully they take it with them and I I could see it already. I could Yeah. Scott just had tickets to the Clippers game 6, I think it was, and um and the fight the uh, mm. Pacquiao fight, um, Mayweather, in Las Vegas. He was going to take a plane from one to the other. It was going to be an amazing night, but he hadn't seen his son, his new baby, in like a week. Mm. He bagged the whole thing. Wow. He said, I, I want to be with Jagger. And so that's just, you know, and I, I smiled to myself when I heard he did yeah. that. I said, you know what? You're a dad. You're a dad first. And that means more than anything to me. Yeah, it's got to be a, an amazing feeling. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So how, this is another thing I was going to ask you. Is like, how have you ma- managed to, I mean, you've been married for quite a while. How many years? 35. 35 years. And I know for myself, my parents have been together for 40 years now. Wow. And it, I feel so blessed to have parents that have been together for that long. How have you kept that fire alive as you were talking about? Because that's, at this day and age, it's, that's, a, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah, yeah right it's thing. very challenging. Um, I, I'm kind of out there, though. My thoughts on this is uh, might not be the norm. But why be normal, right? Well, that's what <laughs> makes you you. Why be normal? No, my, I, I kind of touched upon it a little bit a moment ago. I think it's the man's responsibility because women are naturally just more 
willing to mm-hmm. nurture. So I think it's up to the man to keep the fire alive by making sure that you somehow take your wife and yourself out of your, I hate to say the word, mundane life on a regular basis and go somewhere, do something, anything that's different out of the mm. routine to remind yourselves why you first took that vow. Yeah. So, you know, you're working your ass off you're, and she's like stressed out from all the things that she's doing, whatever it is. It's very easy. And I see it in young families. Cornelio, my, one of my boys, just had his third baby mm. and they're exhausted. They're, they got a, a three-month-old, <laughs> uh, a, two, a two-year-old and a five-year-old, four-year-old. I mean, they're in it, man. They're, they're exhausted. They, they don't have sl- enough sleep. They certainly don't have any social opportunities. Yeah. They're completely exhausted. Yet the challenge will be, and I went through it, the same thing. It's up to Cornelio. And I told him, I said, Cornelio, make sure that you take out the time to do something, carve out something, whether it's a, a night or something or go for a weekend, whatever it is, uh, where you, just you and your wife have that special time and take yourselves out of the typical world and go back to that world where you were like just excited to see her walk down the street, mm. you know? And if you can do that on a regular basis, then you are in good shape. That's the other thing is, uh, and this might be a little bit bold, is that uh, I was unabashed in telling my wife how beautiful she is, but I also told her that you got to stay beautiful. Meaning, mm. I could get in trouble for this because <laughs> um, she is a beautiful woman, but um, I want to be only attracted to her. Or that's not true. Obviously, we're all attracted to beautiful women, but I wanted to be completely attracted to her mm-hmm. that every time she walks in the room I go that's my girl still to this day mm-hmm. I do. and I still try to impress her how about that 35 years later I still want to look good for her if you have that there's some spark that's still yeah. you know smoking up the room a little bit absolutely so that's that's uh, that's important that's some great great advice appreciate that <laughs> so now I want to go back a little bit in the spirit of entrepreneurship I mean kids are entrepreneurs and you have a very big sense of entrepreneurship. And I think that's probably took you from Brooklyn to Greenwich. And <laughs> what's the, what's the backstory on there? How did, I mean, your, your parents were entrepreneurs and, and where did that spirit, how did that spirit develop? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. I've never been asked that, but I, I have to assume that part of it was, uh, my, both my dad and my mom were always telling me, I don't think you're going to be a good employee. You're just not going to be real good listening to someone else tell you what to do. Do something where you call the shots. And if you fail, you fail. But at least you gave it your best shot. Mm. And um, that kind of stuck in my head all the time. And I always thought that, you know, whatever I'm doing or what I'm going to try to do, there's someone else out there who's trying to do it better. Mm -hmm. So I got to rise to the challenge. Yeah. When my kids were growing up, I didn't necessarily think that you have to be entrepreneurs. But I did say that if not you, then who? If mm. you can't go out and who is going to do it? Why not you? Why not you? Yeah. And this goes back to what I was saying about the security blanket, that we, we didn't say, oh, we'll, we got you back. We got you, man. Never said that. Mm. And even when they were going, you know, look, we gave them a lot of things. But when they started their things, they were doing it on their own. Yeah. I made them, I said, look, 
I'll give you a certain level of support, but you want to do this? When Scott said he's leaving school and going to pursue music because he thinks he can really do it well, I said, okay, Scotty, I'm behind you, buddy, but you're going to have to do this on your own. You're going to have to earn it yourself. Yeah. And that challenged him even more mm. because he wanted to show us that he could do it. Now, did he know that we were back there? Yeah, of course he knew. Mm-hmm. And that was very, very helpful. But that allowed his entrepreneurship to flourish, mm-hmm. I really think. And all the bold moves that he took, he took them because he believed in himself, yeah. as did Scott and as Liza is doing right now. Yeah. I mean, my daughter, uh, she was a phenomenal lacrosse player, mm-hmm. all state at, at her high school team and captain and went on to play at Duke University. I mean, high level stuff. And then she wanted to go to medical school and, and she never got a chance to travel mm. um, uh, because she played, you know, high level athletics. She ended up going to move to Israel to go to medical school in Israel and see the world. And I mean, this person has so some people you hear about, oh, they don't want to get away from home. She moved to the other side of the world by herself, knew no one and just challenged herself to do something incredible. Now she's... Uh. She's doing great things. She's going on to be a dermatologist. Uh, and, um, you know, they all sense that, you know, I could do something. I, I can, and I want to be my own person and I want to do, I think it's from that, you know, they knew that they can do the things that other people said, oh, I'll never be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Someone else is going to do something great like that. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's definitely showed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The sad thing is that, you know, now that I look back and I'm being very frank with you, like, I didn't know that any of this would work out this well. Like, I'm telling you the truth now. I'm just being yeah. very honest with you. We, we, we hoped for the best. Just like we have more young parents coming up to us saying, can, can I just rub your shoulder? Can you just give me a little <laughs> of that secret sauce? I mean, this is so, and it's true. My, my kids are like, really are the greatest things my wife and I ever did. But um, all you, all the parents that are out there, if they have certain components of the un, unabashed love for their kids and their support uh, and an appreciation of you know life at all levels, mm-hmm. they can end up with great kids. So yeah. uh, it's not a secret formula as much as uh, a mindset yeah. that they are going to be something terrific. Yeah, but life is a mental game. Yeah. It's all a mental game. And I think, you know, you've installed values and mental, emotional fitness from the very beginning that's that's really helped make them who they are. Oh, yeah. I mean, the toughness uh, was something I insisted on. Mm. You know, having grown up in the Bronx yeah. and, and getting beat up in West Farms all the time, taking the bus because, you know, used to carry my money in my socks. Um, oh. It was a... I, I, I relished the toughness. I was also very small when I was young. Mm. I grew very late. So I used to get picked on a little bit. And then when I got bigger, I was a crazy man for a little while. <laughs> um, but there's a certain level of toughness that I wanted my kids to have also, which yeah. is also goes into this whole thing. When I first got married, I told my wife, look, when we have kids, I'm going to give them a subway token, put them on the train, and they got to find their way home. That's it. They're going to have to figure it out. <laughs> wow. And she said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> Because, you know, back then, you know, you got beat up on the subway. Today, you could get, unfortunately, it's a little different. Although the subways are good. I don't want to knock the New York City subways anymore. But my point is that um, I I wanted them to be street tough. Even though they grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, I wanted them to have this uh, toughness of, of, of knowing that it doesn't always go your way. 
Yeah. And, and certainly uh, the stories that all three kids in, in their in their travels, they have been up against it. Yeah. And uh, they've uh, reached down for that toughness. They know where I come from. They know where their grandparents come from. And my wife as well comes from upstate New York, and she had a modest background. Um, and it just makes you appreciate, you know, what you're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about giving now. I know that's a big thing that you guys instilled on in them as as they were growing up. And yeah. how did how did you do that? And what was the, the idea behind that? Well, both both my parents and my wife's parents were very much uh, of giving. I mean, uh, Susan's Susan's family was always uh, known for their philanthropy and mm. their community spirit and what they were doing. Her mom's always done great things for the community. Uh, my parents, not as much because we didn't have anything. <laughs> There's nothing <laughs> yeah. to give. We were on the other the other side of it. But you know, growing up, we just uh, we wanted to instill in them that you had to share. And this is an interesting uh, story only because my wife and I still argue over who came up with this one. But <laughs> when when they were young and uh, I grew up, uh, the holiday Hanukkah, mm-hmm. where, you know, it was eight days and she grew up and you got a gift every day. That's the American kind of custom. In, in Europe, that doesn't exist. It's There's yeah. no real gifts. Um, so when, you know, we had children and we, I'm looking at this and go, what the, what the hell is this? What, what do you mean the gift every day? What do you, they think it's like, uh, you know, some holiday that, you, <laughs> you know, reek benefits of some sort. Yeah. So we had to compromise because she wanted to give a gift every day. I said that there's no gifts. There's just, we just celebrate. Um, so we came up with a plan where every day we would give them a gift. And then every other day we'd make them give a gift to some, uh, charity of their choice. Mm-hmm. And at first they were a little resistant, but that's the kind of thing we just set up at an early level. Mm-hmm. We always would be the house that, you know, uh, ran charity events or fundraisers. It was always at our house. We always gave our house and we didn't care. I, I think that's Scott, Scott and, and, and the kids, you know, that come on over. Hey, just come to my place. That's fine. We'll, 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 we'll throw the party. Yeah. No problem. When the kids were young, it was always our house that the kids, uh, uh, you know, would come and hang out. And there were more kids hanging out my house that I didn't know who they were. <laughs> and, and, in, and, and it's funny because in Scott's case, you name it, every indigent, um, lower socioeconomic kid that was in the neighborhood was hanging out in my house. <laughs> to the point where I was remember walking into my uh, TV room one time and there's a bunch of kids they're playing pool on the pool table and this kid with wearing a little do-rag looks at me and says who are you? I said who am I? I live here. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> We'd have that all the time. So um, you know we just we just ingrained in them that we share. Simple as that. We share. Yeah. We were very lucky but we share. And um, again you had no idea that it reached the levels that it did but this is just another example of you you live your life a certain way. Mm-hmm. You don't have to preach a lot. You know, we said we share, but we did it. We yeah. actually did it. And we didn't show off when we did it. We didn't say, hey, you see how we, you see, it was just like brushing your teeth. Mm-hmm. It was just part of who you're supposed to be. Of course you share. Of course you give. Of course you feel for others. So if, you, if that occurs, they, I mean, kids are like sponges when they're young. Mm-hmm. To this day, they'll tell me stories and I can't believe that they remember. I have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. But dad, don't you remember that time you took us and we went and you sat there and you said, hey, I have no idea what they're talking about. So um, pay attention to what you're saying. 
yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, and I guess that leads me to one more question is, is, uh, the power of storytelling and I've seen it's such a huge thing in your family. I yeah. Mean, yeah. It, all your whole family is all about telling stories. Oh, and, let me tell you. I mean, it's, tell, it's, yeah. How about where that comes from? Very clear and simple. I mean, it really is from my dad. He was, my dad was an amazing man, incredibly versatile, very powerful. Um, so passionate for his love for his family. You can't even, you can't even describe it, mm -hmm. but he had been through a lot. But he was an amazing storyteller, loved to tell stories. And he was a very resourceful man. So he would tell stories like when he was in the concentration camp, how when, you know, the commandant said, who can be a baker? He would raise his hand. He had no idea what was a baker, but he figured it'd be near the bread and he'd get to eat and whatever. He would just tell amazing stories. And I must tell you, this is the God's honest truth. When I was in college and my parents would periodically visit me at school, yeah. invariably before the weekend was over, I would walk into a room and there would be 10 of my buddies, my frat buddies or my guys hanging out, literally entranced around a table with my dad holding court, telling stories. From the camps to his resistance to the escape from Hungary to his first years as an immigrant trying to raise a family. And they would just with their tongues hanging out. <laughs> and that's when you realized when you're his son, it was like, you know, having breakfast. It was like as ordinary as, you know, mm. the sun rising. That was part of life. Yeah. And it becomes part of you. And then next thing you know, you're telling stories. <laughs> and your own kids are saying, Dad, that's amazing. What stories am I going to tell? And you know what? They're going to tell this, just like we said earlier, their stories. Liza will tell about her amazing escapade to Israel in a foreign country. Yeah. Adam will talk about his amazing backpacking. Scott will tell a story of, of being, uh, you know, this impresario starting from nothing and, and creating this incredible world in the entertainment business. I mean, they'll, they'll have their stories because they, it was part of who they were. And uh, I think storytelling definitely... Uh, takes that track we all were doing it at a young age and it just became so much a part of you that you go next thing you know you're the storyteller <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i love that yep. so one last question that i love to ask all my guests yep. is what does live inspiration mean to you to live inspiration what does that mean to me yeah to live inspiration i would have to say that it would be to carry yourself in such a way that one day others will say, that was a good guy. Mm. That was a good guy. He did, he did good things. And if you can get that little bit out, then you've lived an inspired life. I love that. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you. Well, Irv, I just want to acknowledge you for being who you are in oh, this thanks. world. Uh, you're, you're, you know, you're too, all this stuff, you know, all my kids' success has given us this... Uh, this incredible feeling of, of happiness because, you know, we're, we're so much a part of their world mm -hmm. and we have become little, I've, by the way, I perfectly accepted that we are just known as Scooter's dad or Adam's dad or Liza's dad. That, that's, <laughs> that's who I am now. I don't even have an existence anymore. But you know what? It's a nice ride. Yeah. I mean, my son, my son once in a while asks me, he says, dad, you know, why do you have to live vicariously through me? I said, you have a better place to be than living vicariously. <laughs> I mean, is there a better life to live vicariously? I mean, I'm good with it. I'm good to go. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're very lucky. Well, you've created a tremendous impact in the world. And thank I acknowledge you. you for that. Thanks. And that's very kind. Thank of you for being you. Oh, you're very kind. And, uh, and thanks for being on the show. Yeah. Loved it. Loved it. Thanks, man. 
Thank you guys so much for checking out today's episode of Shop Talk Radio with Big Irv. I'm your host, Nick Onkin. And if you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could help us out by leaving us a good review over on iTunes. Five stars always helps. And actually a written review is also very helpful because it puts us up in the top rankings and we can spread the inspiration to even more people. We'd also love it if you could share these episodes on Facebook or Twitter I'd also love to see where you guys are listening to Shop Talk Radio. So tag me on Instagram at Nick Gonkin, hashtag Shop Talk Radio, where you're being inspired. So with that, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.